Father, we bow in your presence this morning with thankful hearts that we can call ourselves the children of God. As we're here gathered this morning, we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We're thankful for that fellowship that results. We're thankful, Lord, that you've given to us the guidebook for Christian living. And the story, as it picks up with the beginning, with creation, and carries us all the way through to the end, we're so thankful, Lord, that you have given us this instruction. And as we study this book of beginnings, we trust you to continue to open our eyes and give us understanding and pray that we will not only understand the information about what happened, but we'll recognize how it applies to us and that the truths that we find in Genesis will be applicable in our lives today. Lord, draw us close to you. Bless this time as we gather around your word in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 13. I'd like to read again the first 13 verses. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. Now the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with him, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were, exceeding, were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. We note, as we read in this particular passage, that Lot was with him when he went into Egypt, and Lot was with him when he came back out of Egypt. Thus Lot viewed all that went on down in the land of Egypt relative to Abram and Sari and the Pharaoh. Whether that had a lot to do with this desire for separation or not, we don't know, and the passage does not imply that. We notice, though, and this was the last point we were talking about, that Abram came back out of the land of Egypt. He went through the Negev. He went back up the hill country, into the hill country, and went as far as Bethel because that was the last place Abram had built an altar and there had called upon the name of the Lord. Now, we trust that after Bethel, as he moved south, he continued to call on the name of the Lord. But he went back to this place where he'd had a special meeting with God and where he had built this altar. There, I believe, he went to again 
be re-inspired with God's majesty and power and with his purpose and to find his mercy because I'm sure, as we noted last week, that Abram and Sari were extremely repentant over their activities in the land of Egypt. By the time they, la uh, they uh, returned to Bethel, Lot had become very independent and was operating what I believe was a satellite household. The best land of the land of Canaan was already occupied. The Canaanites lived in it, using the, Can the term Canaanite as a gen generic term. And as they looked around and as they moved through the hill country, there was only a certain amount of land open to them. Now, the population of Canaan was not heavy in those days. It was not a dense population. Uh, but nevertheless, much of the good land was already occupied, the lush land, the best land that would have been for sheep and cattle and the animals that they had with them. So as a result, they had to choose from what was left. Now, we're not talking about a man who was shepherding along a small flock of animals that could have, for example, been put in this room. We're talking about thousands of animals. We're talking about donkeys and goats and sheep and camels and both Lot and Abram had huge herds of these animals. So the amount of land it took for them to graze these was quite large. And of course, they're in the hill country, which is very rocky. If you've ever been to uh, Israel, you know how rocky it is in the hill country especially. Now we have to realize, of course, in the day we're talking about, which was nearly 4,000 years ago, that there were far more forests than there are today. In fact, much of, of the land of Israel has been deforested. And that's why they're in the process now of planting millions of trees every year, trying to return some forests to the land. But even if there were more forests, which there were in those days, it was still a rocky land. And it wasn't really the most wonderful land for grazing large herds. So they had to spread over a large amount of territory. Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, according to this passage, were quarreling. Quarreling over what? Probably quarreling over water holes and quarreling over range land. We were here first. No, we got the bigger herd. No, we're Abram's. No, we're Lot. You know, how it might be. At the end of verse 7, as we read this particular passage, you notice it says, Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Why is this statement made? It just seems to come right out of the blue. We're talking about Abraham or Abram and Lot, and we're talking about their animals, and, and they're just appended there right at the end of this verse. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. Why is that put there? Well, it seems there are at least two reasons that was put there. One was to indicate that this wasn't just wide open land that anybody could have. There were people who were dwelling there. And therefore, they had claim to part of the land. And therefore, obviously, only some of the land was open to Abram and Lot. But I think there was another reason that this was given to. It was, I think, to point out that someone was watching them. See, there was strife between the herdsmen. There was quarreling between these two, quote, men of God. And the people were watching. Abram had already been a very poor ambassador down in Egypt for Yahweh, as we've already noticed. And now he is in the land that God is to give to his descendants. And hostility 
if it were to be allowed to continue and to develop and there were to be fighting between the herdsmen, this would be observed and make a very, very poor impression upon the Canaanites and the Perizzites. If these are men of God, why are they acting just as we act? Therefore, I think in Abram's mind at least, there had to be something done to eliminate strife. Now, in our day, we would uh, file suit against one another, wouldn't we? <laughs> and we drag the name of God through the mud of scandal and recrimination, each pressing for his rights. We're really big on our rights in this land. We talk about the Bill of Rights, and we all have our rights. And so, unfortunately, this is the world's approach. If you don't like what your neighbor's doing, sue him. If you don't like what your neighbor did, sue him. If you don't like what your cousin did, sue him. You know, We're a nation of sewers, it seems. <laughs> Unfortunately, this particular activity has infected the church. And over and over again, the church becomes involved. And people in the church sue their pastor or, or, or sue the church or church sues church. I mean, this is so absurd. It's totally in violation, of course, of Scripture. We tend to forget what Jesus said. In what's called the Sermon on the Mount, he said what? Blessed are those who are humble. Now, humble doesn't mean we're a doormat that people can just kind of come along and wipe their feet on. But it means we're gentle and, and we're meek. And meek was what Jesus was. <laughs> Meek meant, of course, that he faced off with the uh, Pharisees, right? And he told them exactly where they stood. We have to understand the full, under, uh, full definition of, of the term meek. But it does mean that we turn the other cheek. We go the second mile. We give our cloak to the one in need. We don't turn around and stand up for our supposed rights every time we feel like we're being violated. Because it says the humble will what? Inherit the earth. Then he, Jesus went on and said, Blessed are the merciful. If we're standing up there with our, our chest swelled and our chin stuck out and standing there for our rights and we're, you're not going to step on my rights, is that merciful? Then Jesus also said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Peacemakers. That's what we really need more of today in our land and in the churches of America are peacemakers. People are more concerned with peace within the body than their supposed rights. In this situation, Abram becomes the peacemaker. And in becoming the peacemaker, he displayed the attributes here of humility and of mercy. I mean, after all, the whole of the land of Canaan was promised to Abram and to his descendants. The whole land promised to him. And so he knew there was room for both of them. Now, when it comes to rights, he had the superior right. He was the clan chief. He was the patriarch. He was the sheik. Lot was simply appended to him. Lot was his nephew. Lot didn't have rights relative to Abram. Abram had the rights. He had the right of choice. If a choice had to be made, it was his right to choose first. But you'll notice what he does. He gives that right to Lot. He says, it's my, he doesn't say this, but he implies this, it's my right, Lot, uh, 
my right to choose, but I give that right to you. He had been very humiliated in Egypt, and Abram was, I think, learning that God would take care of him anywhere, anytime, and under any condition. That reminded me, as I was looking at that, of a psalm that's quite familiar to us, and I think that we can look at it as something that really ministers and applies to us as much as to anyone. Psalm 121. A song of ascents. One of the songs that it is said were sung as the Israelites went up to Jerusalem and the temple to worship. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From whence shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Because He made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Remember the account of Elijah on the top of the mountain with the 450 priests of Baal? He made comments like, well, maybe your God's away on vacation. <laughs> or maybe your God, you know, implying your God's asleep. Well, Baal was asleep, all right, because Baal didn't exist. But God never slumbers nor sleeps. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Now again, Abram didn't have this psalm to read, but he knew the God who was the author of this psalm. And God being the same then as he was in the days of this psalm writer and as he is today, this truth was, could be applied from God. And this truth applies to you and to me, even when it seems like we're in difficult times. And sometimes we look out at the world today, and if we're wise, we begin to, to realize we are living in very difficult times. And things are turning very, very strongly against our supposed Christian background as a nation. And more and more, Christianity is not only not being given a, given a favored position, it's being given an inferior position. And so the day may come when you and I cannot even do what we're doing here this morning. It may come within our lifetime that we cannot do this openly as we're doing this this morning. And uh, Gordon was telling me uh, on Friday about something. Maybe uh, when the class is over, maybe just have you share that for a minute. Uh, but how things, and we're all aware of the things that have changed in Russia and how it seems like Russia is headed in the way we used to be and we're headed in the way they used to be. It's really, it's really, it's stupid is what it is. <laughs> in accepting Abram's offer, Lot displayed some real qualities. Lack of faith, lack of respect, lack of character. Great qualities, <laughs> you know. Something you like your child to have, right? Not really, obviously. In this point, he should have deferred to his elder and said, no, no, you're the clan chief. You take 
first choice, and I will take then what you assign to me or what is left over. But he didn't do that. Instead, he seizes upon the opportunity, grasps this opportunity, so that he can cater to his own selfishness and greed. And as Lot considered his options, I think, first of all, he, he noted, he looked around. You know, the scripture says that he looked down in the Jordan Valley. I think that this implies that he looked around and he considered all that he knew about the land. After all, they had traveled all the way from the north of Galilee down through the center of the land, all the way down to the Negev and off in Egypt, and now they've come back. So he's got some idea of the land. And the land is very small. Most of you are familiar with how small Canaan really is. And it, you know, one trip down through the mountain region and where you get a viewpoint looking to the east and to the west, you pretty well take in the land uh, within a very short period of time. And, and he, re he recounted his uh, uh, thoughts of the Negev, the, the south land. The south land is, is open, it's reasonably fertile, and uh, in, in wet years there's plenty of grass there, but drought came way too often to that area. And that's why they went off into Egypt in the first place. And then he thought of the hill country. It was handy. It was expansive. He was already there. But it was rocky. It was cold and windy, especially in the wintertime. The coastal plains, now the coastal plains were nice. As you look down, could look down over there and remember the coastal plains. But they were heavily occupied by the Canaanites. The Canaanites most densely occupied the coastal plain of any part of Canaan. And then he turned and looked down into the Jordan Valley. The Jordan Valley was warm. The Jordan Valley was watered by the Jordan River. And the Canaanite population that lived there tended to clump in the cities and towns, not be spread out all over the place as they were on the coastal plain. And they were, they were in Jericho and Sodom and Gomorrah and Zeboim and Adma and the various towns that you read about in Genesis. So I think as he stood looking down into the Jordan Valley, and reflecting upon the Jordan River as a dependable source of water. There weren't any dams on it. There weren't, any, there weren't people arguing over who was going to get what water, set as Jordan and Israel does today. It flowed regularly down through the valley there. And of course, the Jordan River, if you've ever noticed, it's, it's, it's full of meanders. And so it broadens the actual area that is watered. Now, it's not a big area, but to him, it looked <coughs> sufficient. And the choice, therefore, became pretty easy for Lot. I choose the Jordan Valley. Do you suppose that Abram was really hurt by that or that he thought, oh boy, I've really blown it? <laughs> I don't really think so. I, I think personally that if the choice had been given to Abram, if, if he had made the choice rather than giving it to Lot, I don't think he would have chosen the Jordan Valley myself. Because the scripture seems to indicate that he was given the whole land of Canaan. And uh, I think he would have stayed in the mountains, just as he uh, would anyway. To me, as, as I read, about, read this and, and thought about what was probably going through Lot's mind, it reminded me of, of back in the third chapter of Genesis where Eve looked at the fruit and she stared and gazed at the fruit and her attention became riveted upon the fruit. It was a lot easier for the serpent to tempt her as she gazed and took it in. And it was appealing to the eye, and it seemed to offer great potential. And I think as Lot looked down there, this valley was so appealing. There was green down there. 
and he knew it was warmer down there than it was up in the hill country. And there were cities down there, and there was advanced civilization. There was security. There were many things that he hadn't known so far wandering back and forth across the land. So it was very appealing to him. And the scripture says that as he looked at it, it came to his mind, this must have been like the Garden of Eden. And he says, it's a lot like what I already know because I've been in the delta of the Nile and I know what that, that's like and this looks a lot like that. Well-watered, green, fertile, I choose the valley of the Jordan. Now from their viewpoint up there near Ai, they would be looking across the widest point of the Jordan Valley. Jordan Valley comes down from the Sea of Galilee and as it comes down it tends to broaden just before it gets down it narrows again a little bit as it comes to the Dead Sea but there's a spot where it's wider there just north of the Dead Sea. It's about 15 miles across from the base of the hills on one side to the base of the hills on the Jordanian side today. About 15 miles across there. And of course it's not a flat plain if you've ever been there. Yeah, there's a double drop into the uh, river valley itself, the actual bottom, the gore as they call it where the river uh, travels. But today, even if you look at that, now parts of the Jordan Valley look pretty desolate. But as you look down into the part where the river is, it's green all up and down the river. The trees and greenery all up and down the river. And of course, the oasis at Jericho is very, very attractive because there are trees and plants growing everywhere out around Jericho. And it's an area watered by springs and uh, in those days, it was abundant with vegetation, and so it is today. Jericho is a lovely place. Jericho is a place which is abundant in fruits and vegetables. In fact, when we visit Israel, that's the place to go if you want to buy particularly citrus fruits. I mean, they have wonderful citrus fruits down there. And, and many other things, too, grapes and all the other kinds of things that uh, we like. And we need to remember where, where Jericho is located. And that's what they would have been seeing down into there. They wouldn't have been able really to see clear down to Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have known it was down the other end there. But they would be able to have seen down to the oasis of Jericho. And um, that oasis is located about the same latitude as, as Ensenada in, ba in Baja, California. If you know, that's just under 32 degrees north latitude. So you know it's down far enough south that it's, it's in a warmer area. And then on top of that, Jericho is 900 feet below sea level. So when you add the latitude to the altitude, you come up with a subtropical climate. And that's basically what you've got there at Jericho. I remember the first time we were there, and, and Len would remember it too, uh, it was cold in Jerusalem. Even snowed on us up there, didn't it? But down in Jericho, it was beautiful. 72 degrees, you know, just sort of the Palm Springs of that area. <laughs> in the wintertime. Now, the summertime's a little different. Summertime, it does get a little bit warmer, and I'm sure the sheep would like to be shorn <laughs> about then uh, because it does get quite warm down there in the uh, summer. I don't know if you've ever been down in the bottom of the Grand Canyon in the middle of the summertime, but you get down near the water level and you're down in what they call the Vishnu Schist, which is that dark metamorphic rock near the bottom, which is real black, and the sun comes up and that, oh boy, it really becomes a furnace down, down there. And it's sort of like what it can be down in the uh, Jordan Valley. Not quite that bad maybe, but still pretty warm in the uh, summertime. So, 
Lot made his choice. He chose what he believed would be the best. Now that's the important point. Whatever part of the land he chose isn't as, as important as his attitude. His attitude was, I want the best for me. And that's what he saw it to be. It didn't turn out to be the best, but that's what he thought. And that was what guided his choice. So he took his household and his flocks, and he migrated down the escarpment there. It's, whether you're coming from Jerusalem or from Bethel, it's about 20 miles down the escarpment to the oasis at Jericho, uh, as you would go wandering down the valleys there into the oasis. The descent is 3,500 feet from Bethel to Jericho. The, the elevation change is approximately 3,500 feet. And so it was kind of downhill, really, of course, the whole way of the 20 or so miles. Now, I don't think that Lot immediately moved to Sodom. I think the verse uh, there, when it says that he chose, in verse 11, for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, and thus they separated. And then it says in, in uh, <coughs> verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. I don't think he just went right on down and zip on down to Sodom. I think he migrated down, stayed on the outskirts of the uh, oasis at Jericho for a while, and he probably slowly migrated all the way down to the other end. It's 65 miles from Jericho to the southern end of the Dead Sea. So probably he took his time, migrated slowly down there to the, the southern end of the Dead Sea where Sodom was, onto the plain of Sodom. Why did he do that? Why did he choose? I mean, the man was a herdsman. He had these large flocks. He normally lived in a tent, not in a city, not behind walls, not in a, a building or a house as we think of it, but in a tent. He was, in effect, a Bedouin. So why in the world did he move to Sodom and become a city dweller? Probably he didn't become a city dweller right away. He probably camped out in his tent. It says he moved his tents down there. Probably lived in his tent outside the city for a while and slowly but surely got sucked into the city. Why? Why would he make <coughs> such a choice? Usually country folk aren't all that keen on becoming city folk, are they? And quite often vice versa. <laughs> Had enough of the city, huh? I think there was a, an excitement and there was a sense of security associated with the city. The city had walls. The city had a regular supply of water, a regular supply of food and these kinds of things. There were people around to fellowship with. There was merriment going on all the time. I, I think it just appealed to his flesh. And so he made the move. Now, what were Sodom and Gomorrah like? Did they only become evil later, or did they have a record of being evil, and why were they evil? Well, let me just read a passage from uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. Quite often we think that the only reason God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah was the fact that they were perverted, and that they were idolatrous, and they were practicing sexual perversion, and certainly that was a big factor, but it was not the only factor. Notice in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. 
she and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me, therefore I removed them when I saw it. So God says it's more than just the abominations. That was part of it. But their haughtiness, their, their careless ease, their arrogance, and their unwillingness to help the poor and the needy. All of this combined together caused God to destroy those two cities and the neighboring cities from off the map. But what went through Lot's mind as he migrated towards Sodom? He didn't just go down the hill and voila, here I am in Sodom. I don't even know how I got here. No. He had to move, migrate slowly, think about it a great deal, constantly moving towards that Las Vegas of the Vale of Siddim, if you like. I think he rationalized a great deal. Now, we don't know a great deal about Lot's spiritual condition right at this particular point. All we know is later on it says, it talks about his righteous soul. And I feel, as I mentioned before, that when he chose to go with Abram in the first place, he could have remained in Haran. Why did he go with Abram anyway? I think it's because he was attracted to the God that Abram served. And so I think there was a kind of a commitment on the part of Lot from the time they first left Haran as he traveled with his uncle and their family. So I believe as he, as he migrated towards the city of Sodom that a lot of rationalization was going on in this man's head. He was probably thinking, if I go down there, I can be an example of a believer in the true God to these pagan people. And I can show them what's right and, and how they ought to think. Certainly he believed, of course, that they will not influence me. Oh, I would never do what they do. I will never think as they think. I, I, I know better. Now, if he thought like this, this could have soothed his conscience, could it not? And helped pave the way for moving down to the city and then ultimately in the city. And along the way, of course, he could experience the comforts and the security that, that this brought. Is such thinking really foreign to us today? I don't think so. Are we ever enticed by the world? Does it offer things that appeal to our flesh? I think we all would admit that. We too may have a tendency to rationalize and to think, well, you know what the world has to offer isn't all that bad. And besides that, it isn't going to influence me to do wrong. And while I'm at it, I might be a witness to some of those godless people out there. And so sometimes we get involved in worldly activity. Now remember the words of Paul when he was talking about the fact that we were not to associate with the world. He didn't mean leave the planet. You know, He knew that we'd have to rub shoulders with godless people. But it's practicing what the world practices. Thinking as the world thinks. Being involved in the world. It, it really, I, I really find it disturbing when I discover sometimes that someone tells me and they claim to be a born-again Christian, that their very best buddy is a godless person. That the family they most enjoy having fun with is a family that has no time for God whatsoever. Now, it's not that we shouldn't have friends amongst those that don't know God. But if those are our best friends, the ones we most want to be with, I think there's really something wrong with our heads. God wants us to be a witness. 
But God tells us not to be friends of the world because the friend of the world, it says, is not a friend of God. Let's turn to the first psalm. It's pretty pointed. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he, pardon me, prospers. Again, this doesn't mean we, we don't rub shoulders with the world. It simply means we don't walk as the world walks. We don't sit where the world sits and enjoy what the world enjoys and, and do the things that the world does for its excitement. We meditate on the law of the Lord. And really, for us to say, if we do, that I can do these things and be untouched by it is to make a very, very foolish statement. Because the scripture over and over again tells us, in effect, that uh, beware lest ye enter into temptation. Because none of us is immune to temptation, to fleshly enticement, and none of us is immune to falling. And we see this happening all the time around us. Even some of the leaders of churches and, and denominations end up falling. I think part of that is the result of the fact that people are not praying as they need to for their leadership. We need to pray for our leadership. We need to pray for this pastoral staff. We need to pray for those people who are at the point where the enemy is, God is guns focused. And to think of it that way, think of it as a warfare. Sometimes we think, oh, well, the pastor is the most spiritual person among us. He doesn't need prayer. I need prayer. <laughs> yeah, we do need prayer, but we need to pray desperately for our leaders because the enemy really turns his big guns on them. James chapter 4 is also equally pointed. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask but do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And here, this verse is a verse that Lois and I often pray. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter, and, and this means worldly pleasures, be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom, that is, to repentance. Humble yourselves in the presence of God, and he will exalt you. Now, if Lot had had that passage to study, and if it had really impacted him, I don't think Lot would have gone to Sodom. But he didn't, of course, and he did go to Sodom. 
And I think his depth of commitment to God was far shallower than Abram's. But we have to view his, his action as not being the will of God because of what happens later. And we get to that account of what happened to Lot as a result of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of his wife. It's really awful what happens. And the ultimate fruit of it is, is long-term hardship for the people of Israel because of one man's wrong choices. So these consequences, the consequences of his choice were profound. And when we get to the 19th chapter of Genesis, we'll look at that in more detail. It's important to note that Lot didn't move into a question, questionable environment. The, lot he, the, the environment he moved into wasn't questionable. The scripture is quite clear about it. He moved into a society which was wicked exceedingly and sinners against God. I mean, it was just clear that this was a vile society, not a questionable society. Now, the Hebrew of this passage clearly pronounces that the people here were wholeheartedly and habitually committed to evil to the very opposite of what God calls good. The word here for wickedness is a word which is at one end of, a, of the scale from the word that God uses for good. And it's the word he uses here. That they were completely at the other end of the scale from what God calls good. They were so vile and so wicked that they were worthy of condemnation by God. And God would condemn them in a way that he has little condemned others in history, in the sense of what he actually carried out. Yes, he flooded the whole world and drowned everybody but Noah and his family, but Sodom and Gomorrah he had a special little judgment for and uh, just literally vaporized the whole society. No matter how broad-minded or sophisticated, I believe these people of Sodom were highly sophisticated. They were probably proud of their education and proud of their wealth. I mean, the scripture in Ezekiel implies all this. They were sophisticated, they, they knew what was right in their own eyes, and, and they were very pluralistic and broad-minded. Oh, whatever you want to do is perfectly all right. Sort of like our society today, there, there are no absolute standards. You know, today, you, 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 we're looking at a situation where in our education system, quite often they're saying, hey, you don't need a standard of, of morals and values because there is no standard. The standard is yours. Your standard's right for you, and my standard's right for me. He moved into the pit of hell. That's where he moved. Verse 14, Genesis 13. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Notice the contrast. Lot makes his choice. And ultimately, Lot pays a, a horrible price. Abram, in his obedience to God, acted in an unselfish, peacemaking way, 
And what is God's response? God comes to him again. And God speaks to him again. You see, it opened the channel for communication. If we have sin in our lives, we cut off communication. And our prayer goes no higher than this ceiling if we harbor sin in our hearts. But if, we, if we're walking in obedience and we continue to, to ask God to cleanse us and we study His Word so we have that cleansing happening all the time, then there's a channel of communication in our prayer goes to the throne of God. And so God spoke to Abram again. And we read the message there in verses 14 through 17. And, and the message was a further detailing of the original promise back in 12.7 where God had simply said, to your descendants I will give this land. That's a very, very short promise. But now God is, is expanding it and explaining it and giving more detail. It, it reminds me of how God leads us. Uh, God walks with us and God leads us to walk in the way with Him and we, He will speak to us when we're walking in the way that he has shown us to walk and when we are walking in obedience to the scripture, even as he did here for, for Abram. Now it says that God promised him and his descendants all the land which he could see, as far as he could see, in all directions. And from his vantage point, up there on the top of the hill country of Ephraim, he could see to the west, to the Mediterranean Sea, and he could see the plain of Philistia and the plain of Sharon, which, of course, in those days were fairly heavily occupied. And to the north, as he looked up across the hills and across the, the uh, Sea of Galilee, he could see Mount Hermon up there, which, depending on the time of the year, would have been snow-covered and beautiful. To the east, of course, he could look across the Jordan Valley, and he could see the uh, hills of Gilead, on the other side, and of Moab. And then south, of course, he could look into the Judean hill country and the Judean wilderness. And in all this direction, all these directions, he could see the land that God had promised to him. And it says here that he promised the land of, that the land of Canaan would belong to his descendants forever. Now, what does that mean? You and I are well aware of the fact that the descendants of Abram have not possessed that land ever since the days of Abram. There are three ways, I think, by which we can interpret this passage, which I've listed for you here. One is that it, this is merely a figure of speech and that God is referring to the approximately 800 years from the time of the Exodus until the Babylonian conquest when they did occupy and generally rule the land, and then since 1948, and that he wasn't referring to anything between the Babylonian con uh, conquest and up to 1948. Secondly, it could be that it was a reference to the millennial uh, period of time and the ultimate period of the New Jerusalem. Again, let me read a familiar passage from Revelation chapter 21, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. 
Her brilliance was like a cost, very costly stone, and a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall, with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names written on them, which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Some feel that the promise there refers to the ultimate eternal state. And there the names of the twelve tribes are on the twelve gates of the city, and that is part of this promise that God made forever and ever. Then thirdly, a third possibility, that it's the reference to Abram's spiritual children, as in Christ and in the church. The physical promised land might be thought of as symbolic of the spiritual kingdom of God. Whatever the case might be, God always tells the truth, and we have to simply understand it as best we can as we walk with Him. In verse 16, God uses what clearly is a metaphor when He describes Abram's descendants as being as numerous as the dust of the earth. <laughs> Whoa. I mean, that is virtually uncountable, right? Even with a high-speed computer. The dust of the earth. Well, we know from, from that that it's only a figure of speech. It's all it can be is a figure of speech. In actuality, the descendants of Abraham would one day number in the tens of millions. Today, there's estimated to be 16 million people called ge generically Jews. And, of course, there have been millions down through the centuries. If this passage uh, also referred to Abram's spiritual descendants, which we are today, then that number would be in the hundreds of millions, possibly even in the billions. But still, that doesn't even make up as much dust as you'll find in your house, pro well, in, in your backyard. <laughs> so it's obviously a figure of speech. Just saying, although you yet have no children whatsoever, one day your children will be numerous. Later on he says, like the stars of the sky. He was commanded to travel through the land. Passage does not say that he did so at this time, except that he traveled down to Hebron. He didn't go back clear to the Negev again. He stopped at the last major town on the route towards the Negev. Journey of about 30 miles. And he set up his household, his tents, near a grove of oaks. Actually, the Hebrew word here implies terebinths. And the terebinth is still somewhat questioned as to exactly what tree that was, but apparently it was a tree of approximately the size and a similar appearance to an oak, and so it's often translated as oak. There at Mamre, which was right near the city of Hebron. Now Hebron is located, if you can visualize it, and I, I, I think it's on the little map I gave you, it's at the southern end of the hill country. The very southern end, once you pass Hebron, the road, the, the ridge route, which comes from the north, it starts to go down, and it starts dropping down, and you drop down ultimately in the Negev. So it's the last city 
on the ridge route in the southern part of the land of Canaan. The city is located at 2,800 feet in elevation, which makes it the highest city in Canaan. The name Hebron meant confederacy, but that was not the original name of the town. The original name of the town was Kiriath Arba, which meant, meant four towns. And so apparently, like ancient Rome, it was the product of the coalition of several nearby villages, which joined together to form a confederacy, and, and ultimately this gave birth to the city, which meant confederacy, that is, the city of Hebron. The people who lived there, there's a little bit of question about them, because Abram refers to some of his confederates there as Amorites, and later on he makes a purchase from Hittites, and so it seems like Hittites and Amorites at least lived in the area and possibly other uh, Canaanite peoples too. What is really significant here is that it was at this place, Hebron, that Abram built the third of the altars which he would build. Notice he built one up in the north at Shechem, one at Bethel, and one at Hebron. They were all along the ridge route. They were all in the hill country. And Shechem was about 13 miles north of Bethel and Hebron about 30 miles south of Bethel. And so these altars were built there where he would call upon the name of the Lord. And thus he had imprinted upon the land his presence and God's presence by stringing these three altars down to the land. And in effect what? Laying claim to the land for the God who would be the God of his descendants, the God of Israel. This brings us to chapter 14, and we're not going to start chapter 14 today, but chapter 14 is, is an, ex I don't know, it's really to me an exciting chapter, and uh, there's some real mystery involved in that particular chapter, and uh, it'll take us probably at least three Sundays to work through it, but we will start next Sunday looking at it.